officially our 300th scheduled episode, though in reality there have been many, many more than that when you factor in those bonus episodes and whatnot. And tonight's episode is also special because it's the season 15 finale. And any longtime listener knows how we treat finales around here. But for those of you brand new to the program, and these special episodes do tend to attract a lot of new listeners... This is Monsters Among Us Podcast, a call-in show about monsters, ghosts, UFOs, interdimensional beings, psychic powers, doppelgangers, disappearing time, and a whole host of other horrifying, honest-to-goodness, true, paranormal encounters. But on these finale episodes, we do things just a little bit different. Not all of these entries are first-hand accounts. Some aren't even accounts at all. Instead, we end our season by sharing legends. Spooky, unsettling, and unique legends. Legends from your neck of the woods, your hometown, or a place that you used to live, or maybe someplace near and dear to your heart. And with that, folks, I welcome you to the Season 15 Finale Special and your latest installment of Hometown Legends. And to kick us off, we begin in a far-off land, via the Rocky Mountains. Brandon from Colorado, welcome to the show. Hello, my name is Brandon. I'm calling out of Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I called in before and I told you about the coffin races in Manitou Springs. And I thought I had another good hometown legend story for you. But this one's not from Colorado. This is from Paris. So it's not really a first-hand account, but it's an interesting story. It might be great for a Hometown Legends episode. So the story is about the Les Innocents Cimetières, or the Cemetery of the Innocents. This was a cemetery that was pivotal in medieval Paris. It was there for hundreds of years. And, you know, then a Christian burial was expensive. But also the prevailing belief was that if you didn't have a Christian burial, your soul would end up in purgatory. And so, you know, many people really did all they could to have a Christian burial. Well, the Church of Les Innocents, where the cemetery was located, began offering free burials so that anyone could get a Christian burial and not have to worry about purgatory after death. Well, this started to become a problem as 
everyone wanted the free Christian burial, and the cemetery filled up quick. They had a charnel house right next to the cemetery, and as they were digging graves, they would dig up old skeletons and cram the remains into the rafters and into the charnel house. And it got to the point where the cemetery was so full that they quit doing single graves. So what would happen is if a person would die, they would be taken to the cemetery, they would receive the blessing by the priest, and they would be placed into a grave that had been blessed. However, the grave was a mass grave. They'd sometimes fit a thousand bodies into the grave before finally closing it up. So what that meant was that bodies were just laying at in this open pit for days or weeks at a time until it was full enough to close up and they would start a new pit. Well, this went on for a few years. And finally, the cemetery just got to be overfilled. Well, the sad part is in 1780, when the cemetery finally reached its capacity, there was a terrible rainstorm and the cemetery flooded. And you think about all these pits just filled with corpses well as the water filled the pits, the bodies floated out. And eventually, the water was so bad, there was so much water, that the wall in the neighboring homes split and the basement was flooded with rotting corpses from the cemetery. Other accounts which have not been able to be verified but are still fun and maybe worth sharing are that as the pits overflowed, bodies were just washing out of the cemetery and flowing down the street. There's even one account of some men at a bar drinking and eating during this rainstorm when a body just sailed right through the front door and slammed into the bar. So, you know, similar to the coffin races, I guess, but on a much grander scale. Now, this flood is the reason, at least one of the reasons, that Paris has its catacombs. The catacombs of Paris are where they deposited all of the bodies from the Zenonsens Cemetery. Later became a market, but they would have a two-man crew working nights. They would dig up bodies from the cemetery, gather their names, throw them into a wagon, and then they would drive to the openings of the catacomb at night, and they would dump the bodies in until that section was full and they'd go on to a new one. It was later that they decided that that could be good for tourism, where they went in and they organized all the skulls and the femurs and all the bones into the modern catacombs that you can visit now in Paris. So anyway, not really supernatural, but I think super interesting and goes well with you know a local legend. So I hope you can use it. I really enjoy your show and have a great day. I do love a good cemetery story. So thank you, Brandon, for sharing the entry. Now parts of this story are awfully gruesome. In 1780, they shut the boneyard down. In 1786, they exhumed most of the bodies from the ground and relocated them in the catacombs, as Brandon had mentioned. What he did not mention, however, is that the bones weren't all white and clean like you see them today, if you were to make your way down there and poke around. No. The bodies in some of these graves had congealed into large deposits of a soap-like substance, delicately dubbed corpse wax, grave wax, or as the French say, adipocere. 
1786, the Holy Innocents Cemetery in Paris was being closed and relocated to what would eventually become the Paris Catacombs. As the bodies were exhumed from the wet earth of the former cemetery, workers noticed that the children's corpses were covered in this grayish, waxy substance. Scientific reports about the cemetery named the substance for the first time adipo, fat, and cere, or wax, adipocere. Adipocere is a yellowish, off-white, cottage cheese-like substance that at first smells like ammonia and then mellows into that sweet, cheesy odor. As the adipocere ages, it hardens, preserving the body. Water had leaked into the caskets, and the fats in the bodies had transformed into soapy, flaky adipocere, preserving them against decay. Now that clip courtesy of Ask a Mortician on YouTube. And the Parisians would use this adipocere to make candles, ointments, and even soap. Finest in all the land, I bet. But you know, Paris, France doesn't get to have all the fun. We do have our very own soap mummies here in the United States. Two of them, in fact. They call them the Soap Man and the Soap Lady. And they were both exhumed from a Philadelphia, Pennsylvania cemetery back in 1857. Here's a quick mention of the aforementioned Soap Lady on behalf of Seed to Believe on YouTube. A weight problem got the best of this 19th century woman, too. In a bizarre chemical reaction, her fatty tissue turned into a soap-like substance. She was someone who was found in the Philadelphia graveyard, and she was of interest scientifically because through a chemical change, her entire body was turned to a soap-like substance. So next time you're trying to impress your friends, tell them all about Adipocere. I bet they'll be shocked. They didn't even know you spoke French. Thanks again, Brandon, for taking the time to share that story and for giving us an opportunity to explore the catacombs of Paris. Now, per usual, if you have a true paranormal story you would like to share with us here on the program, give our hotline a call at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's one 888 N-I-G-H-T or record the story as a voice memo on your phone and email it to me at monstersamonguspodcast at gmail.com and don't forget to send in those true trucker tales we'll return with that special episode to launch season number 16 here in a few weeks now if you will back to season 15 for just a bit longer and to keep us on track Please welcome Brad out of Georgia. Hey, Derek. This is Brad from Decula, Georgia, northeast suburb of Atlanta. I've got a little story that could fit in your hometown legends or your alien black cat category. Anyway, this takes place in a little town about 10 or 15 miles from where I live called Sugar Hill. Sugar Hill sits real close to Lake Lanier which is a uh, most haunted lake in Georgia, but those stores are for another time. Anyway, the legend I'm talking about is called The Legend of Old Pete. And according to the story, Pete was a creature that roamed those woods back in the day before it became so populated and part of Metro Atlanta now. And many of the stories claim that Old Pete was a large black panther. 
some people say it could have come from ancient Cherokee myths, or others say it was just a tale made up by the moonshiners to keep people out of those woods so they wouldn't discover their stills. But anyway, the story uh, isn't as common as it used to be, but I actually know a lady who claims they used to hear the panther screaming at night. So it sounded like a lady screaming. And she said one day they actually saw a big black panther run across their yard. And I considered her to be a credible person. So, yeah, take it for what it is. But that's my story there. The legend of old Pete, the Black Panther in Sugar Hill, Georgia. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the podcast. Take care. Thank you, Brad. Old Pete. I love it. Now, like here in the U.S., the U.K. too has its fair share of alien big cat sightings, which is what it seems this thing might be. But unlike the U.S., over in England, they've named most of their phantom felines. For example, you have the Essex Lion, the Beast of Bodmin Moor, the Beast of Exmoor, the Beast of Barnett, the Beast of Sydenham. I'm starting to notice there's a there's a lot of beasts in there. Well, I never said they were good at naming these creatures, but they often do. Anyway, the point here is that we don't normally name this creature when we see it. I can think of the Beast of Bladenboro, or maybe in a stretch, the Ozark Howler. But for the most part, I can't think of many named ABCs here in the States. So hearing about Old Pete warms the cockles of my heart. I'm always a sucker for a big black cat. Thanks again, Brad, for sharing the story. And long live old Pete. Now, as I write this episode, former Hurricane Hillary is raging outside my office window. I need to take hourly breaks to patrol the grounds for new trouble areas. Water buildup, block drainage, slipping hillsides, mudslides, that sort of thing. So if you're hearing this episode, that means we made it through. And if you're not hearing it, then I guess we have bigger problems. But as Hillary disintegrates into a tropical storm, it's ripping through the communities of eastern San Diego well before it even makes it up here. And that is actually where this next entry takes place. A little old former hotel called the El Cortez. Adrian, welcome to the show. Hey, Derek. It's Adrian from Portland, Maine again. This is a story that might be good for hometown stories. I used to live in El Cortez in San Diego. El Cortez is one of the oldest buildings in downtown. It's pretty famous for being a hotel in its heyday, and then it got converted into apartments. It has a really storied history of, you know, being a really nice hotel over time. It was built in 1927. It's old for San Diego. We lived there for about, I don't know, 10 years. And we've had some very, very peculiar experiences. Almost everybody that I've spoken to that's lived there has had some sort of weird experience. The weirdest one, when my son was born, we had him in the crib one day and he was sleeping. And I'm watching television. My wife is in the kitchen. And the way I'm situated... I'm sitting down watching television, but just off the left is a door towards my son's room, and I can see the crib, and I can see him sleeping. I'm watching ESPN, probably. Something catches my eye, and I look over, 
And what I see is the outline of two hands on the side of the door and a black, like, spherical look like a head poking out like it's peering around the door in my son's room. So I do like a double take and I get up and I just start running towards the door. Immediately when I stand up, the, the whatever those fingers and that head was just slowly starts to peel back and disappear. My wife freaks out because she thought something was wrong with the baby. I get in the room, nothing has happened. Baby's asleep, there's nothing going on. And I'm like, okay, this is really weird. I told my mom about this, but my mom's much more into this than I am. And that story that I just said, I gave to her. And she's all, don't tell me anymore, I'll come over. She came over to the house and she's all, don't tell me any details. I'm gonna come in and see what's going on. She goes in the house, we wait outside, a couple minutes go by, she comes back out and she says, this is important to the story. There's a black man who's stuck here, who feels that he's been abandoned and he needs to be let go. He's not harmful. He's just making sure that your son's okay when he sleeps and he needs to find his way home. So we sent him home. What my mom didn't know was that the previous owner of that home was African-American. And when we did our final walkthrough through the condo before we bought it, everything was empty except for maybe two or three things that were left behind that were gonna get taken once we closed escrow. One of which was an urn that was in the bar area she left the urn and she was going to take that last. So that's just one of the stories. It was very peculiar. One time I came home and we have valet and it's like two, three in the morning. The valet was sheet white and I'm like, something happened. Someone got robbed or car got stolen. He goes, no, I need to show you something, but it's kind of weird. And he showed me on the security video camera, the gym, and the gym video shows the whole entire gym, but there's a punching bag in the middle of the room that starts moving a little bit. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's the air conditioner. Or, hey, someone broke in from the outside or whatever. And then the punching bag starts moving three to four feet left to right uncontrollably and then just stops dead center. And then you see the light turn on and the guy walk in and then run back out. He quit the next day. He was telling us that he would always see and feel things. Same area, the gym, next to a spa, a bunch of people were in the spa. People were in the spa, they had to go to the bathroom, which is in the gym next door. Guy comes back after he goes to the bathroom, he goes, hey, what's up with the little kid in the bench in the, in the gym? So there's obviously no kid. That's been the number one thing. It's a woman and a little kid. And if you look up the history of El Cortez, has a very storied history. It also has a very dark history where it was abandoned for a while and it basically became a crack den. And when they were doing the walkthrough to convert it to condos, there was a bunch of dead bodies and there was a meth lab on the top on the penthouse and all this crazy stuff. So yeah, it's one of those places like the guy on the 11th floor can't keep a roommate because that room that he rents out is completely haunted. There's a lot of weird stuff in that building. Well, I appreciate it, Derek. Thank you very much. 
hottest hotel news in light years. From San Diego, where this cute little space cadet pilots an elevator that's designed for outer space, an all-glass exterior elevator that zooms up the facade of the El Cortez Hotel 15 stories to a rooftop ballroom. And what a ride it is, affording a magnificent panorama of the city. Now that's an original news clip from all the way back in 1956, courtesy of Universal International News. And San Diego has its fair share of haunted hotels. And the weather ain't half bad down there either. Just not this weekend. So if you're looking for a vacation destination, a haunted vacation destination, might I suggest San Diego. Thanks again, Adrian, for sharing the entry. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we reach a crossroad in life. We don't know which path to take. Whether you're thinking about a career change or going through a rocky phase in your relationship, therapy can help you map out your options and find a way forward you feel good about. Now, therapy has helped me set better boundaries, become more confident in my decision-making, and show up as a better version of myself. And I think it could do the same for you. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, which makes it convenient, flexible, and affordable. And if for some reason you aren't vibing with your therapist, you can switch at any time for no additional charge. Now let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash Monsters Among Us today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash Monsters Among Us. Now, as always, supporting our sponsors supports the show. So thank you for listening. Now back to those legends. Now, this next one comes to us from a friend of a friend. Tony from Tennessee. Please, go ahead with your entry. Hi, Derek. This is Zinger's friend, Tony. And I am calling about, well, my hometown legend in the Cinnabar Tunnel in northeast Tennessee. Allegedly, this tunnel was where uh, either, A, somebody broke into the Cinnabar home and killed the family and... Mr. Sinisbaugh found him in the tunnel and killed him, or Mr. Sinisbaugh killed his family and went to hide in the tunnel where he was killed. In any case, the tunnel is haunted. Rumor is that if you stop your car in the middle of the tunnel, it won't start back up, and you can see the ghost of Mr. Sinisbaugh start to walk towards your car. Well, over the 4th of July week, I had some friend come into town, and her and her 16-year-old daughter we're very excited. They'd just gotten into ghost hunting, and they were wanting to try it out here. They'd bought some equipment, and we said, all right, well, I just learned about this tunnel, so we decided to head to the Sinisbaugh Tunnel. It's not a very long tunnel, and I'd never actually been there before, but it does look, Rick, got a lot of graffiti on it, you know, kind of rough. It's out in the wooded area in the outskirts of Kingsport, but we made our way out that way. They had their equipment. We said, all right. We're just going to drive through just to kind of get a feel for it, see what it looks like. And we drove through the tunnel very slowly. They had their equipment out, but they said nothing acted up. Said, all right. Turned around, drove back through. And my friend said, hey, 
there's a pull-off right here. We want to pull off. We want to walk inside the tunnel. I said, all right. So I pulled off. So I'm going to wait in the car. And around that time, a local came by in the, through the woods riding a lawnmower that had probably been modified so that it could handle riding through these woods because it wasn't an easy ride. And he started blasting country music about the time my friends went to head into the tunnel. And I went over to the guy, and I just kind of waved and said hello, introduced myself, and he turned his music off because, you know, like, I know that it's technically public property, it's a road, but I still feel like we're invading on this guy's land, his, his yard, his farm, I don't know. But so and I started talking to the guy, and my friends walked through the tunnel, came back out, and they came back out looking really kind of nervous. Apparently, the daughter, her EMF reader and her camera had both stopped working while she was in the tunnel. Their batteries were charged. They were ready to go. But about halfway through that tunnel, they just quit. And my friend, she had a voice recorder out and had been talking into it. And on our way back, we were listening and she got some EVP. She said that she asked in the tunnel, does anyone want to talk? And the voice she could hear come back say, yes. For my sake, like I said, I didn't go into the tunnel. I was talking to this local guy. He said that he'd driven through that tunnel every day and never had anything weird happen to him. But, you know, it happened to us. So, anyway, that's our story of our trip in the Cinnasbot Tunnel. Have a good day, Derek. Have a good day, listeners. Bye. Thank you, Tony. And don't worry, I won't hold your friendship with Zenger against you. Nobody's perfect. Now, of course, he's referring to Justin Zenger of Zeng This Podcast, who was also one-third of the Knights at the Round Table, found for free over at our Patreon page. And I'm just giving him a hard time. Of course, he's a good friend. And it's an interesting entry, Tony. I've not heard of this particular tunnel, which, of course, sent me on a deep dive. And what I found not only confirms the legends, but also adds another tragedy that could help explain some of the strange activity reported there. Here is that information, courtesy of a true Sensenbaugh descendant and WJHL News 11 out of Johnson City. I'm a Sensenbaugh. I was born here. My father was born here. His father, I think, settled here, Charlie. And... Uh, we have actually been here for as long as I can remember. Local legend takes us back to the 1900s and Edward Sensabaugh. The story goes that he killed his family and he, his wife and baby and their spirits haunt the tunnel. I've also heard that when they were building the railroad tracks just over the hill here, that there was a huge explosion and several workers were killed. And I do know for a fact that they're buried at the church in the parking lot, there's no nothing to identify the grace, but some people say they haunt it. Rumors of death, satanic rituals, and hauntings led locals to believe that this is an evil place. People have heard screams, they've heard loud noises, they've heard gunshots, they've heard... Uh, some people have actually said they saw a ghost. Yet people come here from all over looking for a scare, and many say if you turn your car engine off inside the tunnel... The car won't restart and they hear babies crying or women screaming. That's what I've always heard my whole life. 
For Joe Sinsabaugh, she thinks the local legends might be fudged by the family over the years to keep people off the property. But it hasn't slowed anyone down. They still keep coming. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Joe says even she has never been here at night. It got me the creeps when I pulled in here. So if the tragedy of the Sinsenbaugh family wasn't enough to inspire strange activity in the tunnel, those fallen railroad workers certainly might be. Great stuff, Tony. Thank you again for introducing us to a previously unknown legend. At least it was to me. Now, before we push play on this next entry... I need to take a second to tell you how well the premiere for our film, Shadows in the Desert, High Strangeness in the Brago Triangle went. By our estimations, we had about 200 people in attendance over the two screenings. We got to meet some amazing folks. People did some traveling. Eric from New Jersey and Goldie from Montana were two long-distance travelers that stick out in my mind. It was also great to finally meet and hang out with the boys over at Bigfoot Collectors Club. Bryce, Michael, and Riley were not only there to support, but are stars of the film. Check out our social media account if you'd like to see some photos and videos of the event. Again, I'd like to thank everyone for traveling out and watching the film with us. What an amazing time. And while I'm at it, a huge thanks to the Rustic Theater, the town of Idlewild the Idlewild Brew Pub, and everyone that helped put the event together. Most especially my lovely wife, Sarah, who did a lot of work to help make this happen. Now, folks, we have screenings popping up all over the country. If you hurry, you can catch the film the night that this episode drops, August 24th, at the Shelby Theaters in Coshocton, Ohio, about an hour east of Columbus, and right down the road from where I grew up. You might even see some of my family there. The film is also playing at the Bookhouse Cinema in Joplin, Missouri, September 8th through the 14th, the Majestic Theater in Crested Butte, Colorado, September 16th, and September 22nd through the 24th at the Inglewood Cinema in Inglewood, Ohio. And we're working on other showings in Portland, Oregon, Omaha, Nebraska, Boise, Idaho, and San Jose, California. More info on those dates on a future episode. Now remember, if you have access to a theater, you own one or your buddy does. Perhaps your best friend's parents do. Something along those lines. Whatever the case, put me in touch and I'll do what I can to get a screening going. And remember, sending me a message saying, try such and such theater is a waste of both of our time. I've quickly learned that these theaters, like podcasts, are terrible at replying to emails. Anyway, I hope to see you all at the movies. Not literally, because I won't be there, but I really want you to go. Now, this next subject was covered on last season's hometown finale special, but we didn't get it firsthand. Here to tell us how it really feels to walk the halls of a haunted Toys R Us store. Please welcome Pete from here in California. Hey, this is Positive Pete. I am from Sunnyvale, California, part of NorCal, Silicon Valley Bay Area. The story is kind of like a local thing. 
growing up, there used to be a Toys R Us right off the main street of El Camino in Sunnyvale. I was a kid, like, around the 90s, so it was probably 91. I was, like, six or seven. But always going there and shopping, usually going to the restroom. They would go to the restroom, little hallway, and you feel kind of weird going down that hallway. And I remember going and always feeling weird. And then the water fountain would always move, and it was the old school, it was the 90s, so it wasn't, like, a sensor one. It was one you physically had to push. I remember seeing it move on its own, and I was a few feet away from it, so it wasn't me. There was no one else there. And always at that toy store, finding out growing up, the local, I guess, legend, I guess, is that used to be um, farmland back in the day with a bunch of orchards and everything. So back in those days, I guess, the rumor is, the story is told that somebody who used to have a, a shop hand for the local person who owned the farmland and would cut down trees and stuff and help out, I guess he had a crush on the daughter or something, and he always liked her, but the dad never approved of it, and somehow some accident happened. I don't know the trueness of the story, but that's what I was told. But for years and years, everybody we knew who worked there or who was around it always had a story about the haunted Toys R Us in Sunnyvale. And the funny thing was, things always happened in that section near the bathroom or the back room toward that area. Toys would randomly pop out of the aisle or just fall. But the funny thing is, once they remodeled the store, they told to close that section off that had the most of the encounters. And then, obviously, as we know, Toys R Us went out of business, and now it's actually turned into an REI store. I haven't been in there since. So I don't know how much trueness of the history of the story is, but I'm just giving you one of these encounters I've had, and just in case someone else has, from my area, has any more knowledge about it, or maybe you could research more about it, I don't know, but it sounded like something cool to tell. I love the podcast. Hope to hear from you soon. Thanks. Thank you, Pete. Now, if you find yourself in the San Jose, California area, Sunnyvale to be specific, be sure to visit that REI because you never know what you might encounter. And check out Season 14, Episode 20 for more details on this and other haunted department stores. And thank you again, Positive Pete, for sharing the entry. So many hard shades Circles outside the tree line. I made a beeline in your direction. Heard my name called, and I think that I see signs. I dodged the beast on brain road on a campaign. Lovers lane, if you say so. Got directions for three men, they were all friends. They just appeared, all mirrored, it was weird Fell asleep and lost them This kind of thing happens often Bigfoot's real, saw a UFO the other day Nobody listens to what I say Still I tell them that I love you Only thinking of you
That is the brand new single, Believe, by School for Boys. It dropped yesterday on Spotify and several other streaming platforms. And I challenge you to name a paranormal phenomenon that's not mentioned in this little ditty. Great job, School for Boys. And as longtime listeners know, I often play paranormal-themed music here on this finale episode. So if you have a project you'd like me to share, shoot me an email, just like Matt did from School for Boys. Thanks, Matt. And now for one of my favorite parts of the Hometown Legends series, a treasure story. And here to regale us with tales of gold in the Old West is Daniel out of the Grand Canyon State. My name is Daniel. I live in Arizona. I thought I'd call with a hometown legend. So when I was a kid where I grew up, there were two little mountains like adjacent to each other. And one of them had a pretty sizable cave in it. And so there was a little legend, I guess, around the neighborhood that I grew up in that two miners, I don't know, in like the 1800s had been out in this area searching for precious metals. But supposedly they did find some. But I'm going to assume it was copper. We have a lot of copper here in Arizona. So one night the two partners were setting up camp in this cave and apparently the legend goes that as soon as one partner had fallen asleep the other killed him in order to you know keep the claim to all the metals and so the legend goes if you go out there you know late at night you can hear the screams of that partner being murdered when i was little of course (laughs) with some of my friends we went out late at night you know it had to be close to midnight to you know, antagonize these spirits as little boys do and try and get a reaction. And so we hung out in that area. I don't know, it felt like a while, probably about 15, 20 minutes and nothing had happened. And so a couple of us picked up some rocks and we started throwing them in the cave. And we ended up hearing the scream and we all freaked out and panicked and ran home. But full disclosure, we do have a lot of mountain lions out here, pumas, some people might know them as, and so it's very feasible that this legend started just because people are irritating, you know, a mountain lion or a puma while it's trying to sleep and it roars or growls or hisses or whatever to scare them off. I know they can make sounds that can kind of sound like the scream of someone being murdered. But anyway, that's my little hometown legend. I wanted to contribute to keep the show going. All right, thanks, Derek. Bye. Thank you, Daniel. You know, like I said, I love a good treasure story. And we actually have several around here. But there's one that is super close to home. See, our proximity to the glitz and glam of Hollywood has influence on our area. Prominent performers like Doris Day, Shirley Temple, Dick Clark, Priscilla Presley, John Candy and Patrick Swayze, all once owned homes a mere two or three miles from my rickety little cabin. Many stars still own homes here on the lake, but they buy and sell so often that I can't keep up. But in the beginning, before the lake, before the cabins, it was down the mountain that was the draw. 
a mere seven miles down the slope sits Arrowhead Peak. Emblazed on the side of that mountain is a 1,400 foot long by 550 foot wide Arrowhead. Naturally formed on the mountain when an earthquake centuries ago shifted the side of the slope, exposing white rock in the shape of, well, an arrowhead. And coincidentally enough, that arrowhead points directly to a series of hot and cold water springs. And on top of those springs stands the prestigious Arrowhead Springs Hotel. And in order to tell this story, you need to know a little bit about this prominent local landmark. In 1864, David Noble Smith came up with the idea of converting the hot mineral springs located in the foothills below the Arrowhead and north of San Bernardino into a health spa. His infirmary slash hotel included bathing rooms, a health sanitarium, and a small lake for the cure of arthritis and other ailments. Unfortunately, this building and the second hotel built in 1886 were destroyed by fire. The third hotel was built in 1905, and starting in the mid-1920s, Arrowhead Springs became known as a popular hangout for Hollywood celebrities. In 1938, another fire destroyed this building. The fourth Arrowhead Springs Hotel opened on December 16, 1939, with a gala attended by Hollywood royalty. That clip credited to the city of San Bernardino. Now, one of those owners not mentioned in the video was a polarizing character, a pioneering bodybuilder, a nudist, a multimillionaire, and a wannabe politician, and one of the first hotel magnates this country has ever seen. And at one point, this eccentric was one of the most well-known men on the planet. Of course, I speak of Bernard, Bernard McFadden. He changed his name to Bernard because he thought it sounded like a lion's roar. It's the kind of guy we're dealing with. Anyway, here's coverage of him skydiving in Paris for his 84th birthday, all the way back in 1952, courtesy of British Pathé. Paris and a passing plane is about to discard a veteran parachutist, Mr. Bernard McFadden, the American PT expert who celebrates his 84th birthday by dropping 1,500 feet on the banks of the Seine. This is apparently a hobby of Mr. McFadden's as he leapt into the Hudson last year just for a birthday treat. Doctors say it's a good remedy for strained nerves, so why not try this out for that summer holiday next year? And he did a skydive for his 83rd birthday as well. And there's a link to that video in the show notes if you'd like to watch. But with all that backstory safely downloaded, here is my hometown legend. As I noted a bit ago, the Arrowhead Springs Hotel is close. And Bernard McFadden once owned said hotel. Up until his death in 1955 if I remember correctly. But right before he died, it's said that the now nearly delusional McFadden gathered up the last of his wealth and buried it on the mountainside, leading up to our tiny community. Rumors persist of cooks in the hotel kitchen, watching him through the windows as he trudged up the steep incline, shovel in one hand and a bag or satchel in the other, presumably full of gold, silver, and other desirable treasures. Other tales tell of his wife catching him in the action of burying his wealth. 
which led Bernard to promise to draw a map to the treasure before he eventually expired. A promise that he did not keep. Hence why the treasure has yet to be found. But there are a few catches to this story. For starters, it was believed that McFadden was flat broke by this period of his life. Several failed political campaigns, including a campaign for president, and a few bad investments helped deplete old Bernard's assets. But his fourth wife, Johnny Lee McFadden, claimed that there was plenty of money left when the old man finally died. Now many close to McFadden said that the rumors of buried money were false. However, in 1960, a steel cartridge box was found buried on Long Island on some property once owned by McFadden. The kicker here is that the box contained $89,000, lending credence to the legend of the treasure of Arrowhead Springs. Now I imagine the land that he buried the treasure on, if he ever did so at all, would be National Forest land today. The San Bernardino National Forest, to be exact. So anyone that finds that cache would be wise to keep it under their hat. And perhaps it's already been located. Or, with a little luck, it's still out there. Just waiting to be discovered. Thank you again, Daniel, for the stories. And for segueing me into my very own hometown legend. So this next entry takes us across the pond. Jordan, welcome to the show. Hi, Derek. My name is Jordan. This is an entry for your upcoming Hometown Legends episode. I'm originally from Kentucky, but my wife is from England. And so when we got married, I moved over here. I currently live in a town called Maidstone in Kent, which is just about 40 minutes or so south of London. This area is loaded with history. There's Viking history here. Obviously, you have all the castles and all of the peasant revolt began here. So there's a lot of violent history as well. And so there's tons of legends around this area. But place I wanted to focus on was a small village just a little bit west of me called Pluckley. And really, you could do an entire Hometown Legends episode on the village of Pluckley. It's even in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most haunted village in the UK. It's said to have like 15 ghosts or something that roams around the area. Old brickworks factories, a haunted carriage that goes up and down the street, a ghost of someone who killed themselves in a graveyard. So all kinds of crazy stories. But the one I really want to focus on, because honestly, the history of it compared to the area is actually kind of recent. So that one really kind of struck me. So this is the legend I want to tell you. It's about an area just around the edges of that village Pluckley known as Deering Wood. And the wood itself is pretty freaky anyway. And the fact that it gets really foggy and covered with mist. And it's said that people have way in the past have been lost in the woods for days because the fog would get so thick. But back in the 1930s or 40s, there was reported to be lights and weird sounds coming from that woods. People would tell the police the next day, 
And no one really thought anything of it. It was Halloween night, so everyone just thought it might have been teenagers having a good time out and just messing around with Halloween. But the next day, someone was walking in the woods, walking their dog or something the very next morning, so six, seven in the morning, and found 20 bodies. These bodies were all scattered around a general area in the woods, but you could just kind of see them all from where he was. The weird thing was none of them showed any marks or signs of struggle. Nothing was ever found of how they could have possibly died. Uh, And this is an actual report. So they were reported as to being killed by carbon monoxide poisoning, but obviously people didn't think that that was the end of the story. They say you walk through those woods and you can hear the voices of these people screaming. You can hear them whisper in your ears. Well, fast forward a few years, I think it was the late or mid-1990s, you have four teenagers, Halloween night, who decide to camp out in these woods, which is kind of a thing that people do around this legend. They go and they walk the woods at night or they stay overnight, that kind of thing. Well, these four teenagers that went camping in those woods turned up missing and their bodies were never found. They're still missing to this day. And it happened on the same night. Again, more reports of weird lights and sounds coming from the woods that very same evening. So the legend is something is going on in those woods and no one really knows what it is. Yeah, just thought that one was a really cool entry. Like I said, there's tons of hometown legends around this area. So maybe one day in the future, I'd call back in and give you another one. Love everything that you do. Really nice podcast. Have a lot of fun listening. Thanks. Have a nice one. Thank you, Jordan. Well, folks, here we have an example of a mega hometown legend. A single place with a plethora of paranormal phenomena. Some 15 ghostly spirits shoehorned into one tiny little British village. Now we did some digging on this mysterious place, just like we do for almost every hometown legend. And what we found might make it easier for residents to walk the streets after dark. While many of the legends that Jordan describes seem to be based in some sort of reality, a tragic event or a terrifying sighting, the dead bodies in the forest do not fall within those parameters. You see, both instances wherein several bodies were found in this area seem to be fabricated. A yarn spun in the popular contemporary storytelling style, known as creepypasta. Now, if you're looking for sources on that claim, check out the show notes. But several people have pointed out that the events have no basis in reality and were, by most accounts, made up. But, and you know how I feel about bots, but that doesn't mean the rest of the stories that Jordan told were untrue. In fact, we managed to find the following mention from a popular British television program called Strange But True which originally aired on September 13th of 1996. Among Pluckley's local landmarks are Devil's Bush, Fright Corner, and Screaming Woods. As the place names suggest, the village has its darker side. Frightening shadowy figures and mournful apparitions are some of the strange sightings which have been reported over the years and ghostly screams have been heard coming from the thick woodland that engulfs the village. If the stories are to be believed, 
This is the land of the undead. There are 12 ghosts in Pluckley, plus one or two more that have uh, shown on the scene recently. Uh, for a place this size, that is quite phenomenal. As far as villages go, this has got the most, undoubtedly the most haunted village in England. This quintessentially English hamlet has indeed earned the title of the country's most haunted village. But can there really be two white ladies, a red lady and a monk roaming through Pluckley? These are questions that divide the village. Some dismiss the stories as pure fantasy and warn that they could turn the village into a tourist trap. But to others, the ghostly tales are chilling reality. I was going back from Betherston with babysitting the grandchildren. It was quite past midnight. We got to Pluckley, or the poor Pluckley Pinnock, and we see this bright light coming towards us. We could see it was a coach and uh, horses. We might as well just slowed down and, uh, you know, we looked and looked again because we couldn't believe our eyes. I mean, we've been up and down the roads loads of times, never ever seen anything before. There's nobody on it, couldn't see anybody on it. And then it just disappeared into the night. I mean, I've heard of uh, Pluckley being haunted, but until we actually see that, I, I didn't really believe it until then. But I do believe that there are such things now. Well, there you are, folks. If you find yourself in jolly old England, and you're looking for a quiet getaway, at least from the living, Plucky is your place. And thank you, Jordan, for putting it on our radar. Well, folks, what would a hometown legend episode be without some sort of monster roaming around just outside of town? And here to share that story is Victor from Washington State. Hey, Derek. I got a hometown legend for you. So my name is Victor. And I live in Mill Creek, Washington State. It's like a small town, which is close to other bigger towns. And it's a very, very like suburban, wealthy kind of place. But anyway, this story takes place around coronavirus when everything was quarantined, so nobody was out. And it's about 12 p.m. at night, and I decided to take a walk just because, you know, it was so boring of being in quarantine, there's nothing to do. So I'm walking in the kind of downtown area, there's like an LA fitness gym, there's a bunch of little restaurants. But the thing with this trail that I was walking on is that it goes along all the apartments and all the buildings. So on the right, you got all these cute little buildings and on the left, you got a fence and then just woods, like the marsh, you know, where I'm walking. I've seen owls there. I've seen like a bear one time. I see raccoons all the time just walking around, you know. But anyways, I walk through this trail Nothing really out of the ordinary. I don't see anything, but it's when I came back. I was walking back, and it's really late at this point. I'm feeling sleepy because of how, you know, just how it is. And I'm ready to go home and just take a nap. And as I'm walking back, I see on the same trail that I came on what appears to be like a pale rock, but one that was really oddly shaped. It was like long, monolithic, and round and pointy if that makes any sense. Like, it wasn't jagged or anything. I, it looked a little bit organic, I'm not going to lie. Like, I didn't know if it was a rock or something kneeling down, but I was like, okay, this is 99% this is of rock. You know, why would something just be kneeling down right here? So I walk a little bit closer. I'm not really 
too concerned. I'm just like, this wasn't really here before. It's weird. But then I hear this little, like a clicking sound, like clicking and scratching, like coming from this thing. And at this point, I just freeze my tracks. I'm like, what the frick is that, you know? And I, I slowly pull out my phone and turn the flashlight on. And as I turn it on, my throat literally tightened so much that I couldn't even make a noise because I see it's just something kneeling. I don't know what it was. It was like this, just a thing kneeling down and bending over and it, nothing happens for a split second. It's not even moving anything. I'm like, oh, this is some weird statue or whatever. And then it just stands up and I'm six feet tall. This thing is two, at least two feet taller than me. If not, you know, more than that, it was incredibly slender. It basically like unfolded from how it was kneeling down on the rock. It was slender, hairless, and had this weird wrinkly, like I would say moon colored skin. Like it was pale yellow with just the weirdest tinge. I looked at his head, it was featureless. I mean, it had two little black beady eyes and a small mouth that was not moving. It looked, just looked like a slit. And the rest of the creature was just bald. And then I look at it, it looks at me, and it just turns the other direction and starts running. And I do the same thing. I'm just sprinting next to these apartments with the forest now on my right, because when I came, it was on the left. But it's the same path I was going down. And I'm just flying through it. And I ran all the way out the other end of the path, looped all the way around, and went back to my car and drove home. But I have no idea what that thing was. I was not on any drugs or anything at the time. It was just so creepy, especially because literally, like, as I'm seeing this thing, I could have looked to my right and just looked at somebody's house. You know, they could have been watching Modern Family on their TV, just feet away from this, this, this creature sitting there kneeling and clicking by their doors. Anyways, yeah, Mill Creek, Washington. Let me know if you've heard any more of these things, and I love your podcast, Derek. Thank you. All right, Victor. Just saying that it's a hometown legend doesn't make it one. What is the tie-in with local lore in your area? Are there already pale crawler legends in place in the Evergreen State? Going forward, hometown legends should always involve a legend that already exists. This entry, albeit great, spooky, and interesting, is in my opinion just a regular old call. You snuck one in on us, Victor. But I kind of don't mind because the story is pretty gripping. And as I briefly alluded to a moment ago, this sounds exactly like the pale crawler creatures that we've featured here on the program in the past. Surprisingly, we've had about a dozen entries sharing the very same description. An unusually tall humanoid, pale in color with slight features, and almost always witnessed at night. At least, that's the claim. But let's do our best to swing this back in the hometown legend direction. Delaney and I scoured legends local to that area, and honestly, we didn't find much. Outside of mentions of Slenderman, the rake, and more pale crawlers. But what we're digging for here is something a little deeper. Something a little older. And I may have found something that could connect Victor's sighting to what we would call a hometown legend. And it's the story of the Back's Back, Wellinoxiwai. 
the monster known as Baxback Willanuxiwai, lives in a remote cabin in the far northwest corner of Washington State. His house is covered in red cedar bark and blood-red smoke pours from the chimney. Baxback Willanuxiwai and his house have existed shortly after man first fished what is now known as the Salish Sea. Baxback Willanuxiwai may have once been a man, a cannibal who ate his own kin and was cursed, but the creature is no man now. It appears as a hairless bear-like human, covered in bloody mouths that all cry out, Hap, 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 or in the native language, Eat, Eat, Eat. The cannibal at the north end of the world, as he's known, has many helpers, all extensions of his will. Komanaga appears as a human wife, welcoming in strangers who happen by his home. His servant, King Alalala, also appears human and will prepare meals and help entertain the guests, making them comfortable. The soon-to-be victims will be fed and entertained and lulled to sleep by the food and warmth of the cabin. Then backs back Wolanuxi way will enter and devour his prey. There are tales that the cursed creature was betrayed by Kumanaga and killed by humans. But this was simply a ruse to distract the indigenous people from actually killing him. In place of his body, he gestated and created an ogre and sent in his place to be burned by humans in a pit. Every few generations, backs back while an way will have to create another ogre to be killed by humans so that he can continue his life. Now that blurb comes from a Monsters for the Pacific Northwest post at addercap.net. A link can be found in the show notes. And how about it? Could Victor have seen one of these ogres that the backs back while an sent out to be sacrificed by us humans? Or is this simply an old legend that I loosely made a connection to? In truth, I don't even know. But what I do know is that Millview, Washington isn't the only place where people are seeing creatures like this. And as of the past few years, it seems they've been witnessed in my area as well. I've linked to a couple stories that seem to describe a similar creature that's been reported out of the Big Bear, California area just a few miles over the mountain here. Now I'm still digging into all that info, and I'll keep you all posted as it develops. But until then, thank you, Victor, for the call, even if it really wasn't a hometown legend. Now, folks, we are nearing the end of this special episode, and we're nearing the end of Dogman Days of Summer, our annual special sale event found over at our merch shop, at MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com From now until the end of August, you can get 15% off almost every item in the shop. But don't delay. If you hurry now, you'll save a few bucks. You can get your gear before the spooky season even starts. And you can support your favorite podcast in the process. That's MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com And click that shop tab. Now, we don't often get to go abroad when it comes to these hometown legends. But tonight, we get to cross the Atlantic a few times. For this leg, please welcome this anonymous caller. Originally, 
from Bulgaria. Hi, Derek. This is one for Hometown Legends. It's about Petrich, Bulgaria. It's a small town by the border with Greece. The story is about a legend surrounding Vanga, who is considered a modern-day prophet. The legend goes that when she was quite young, she was picked up by a tornado or a hurricane, and that the wind of that dropped her in front of the three Urisnici. Now, Urisnici is Bulgarian and Greek folklore about three women, and they decide the fate of children. So, as in English, the fates, essentially. You're usually not supposed to get a second visit from them, but as she was dropped right in front of them, they decided that they're going to give her an additional gift. So one of them said that she will have the gift of the third sight, but the second one said that they need to take something away because it was her second visit to them, so they took her eyesight. The interesting thing about this particular legend surrounding this lady Vanga was that my great-grandmother was her cousin or somehow related to her via marriage. And I remember she actually confirmed that when she was a kid, she was indeed missing for a while during a storm. And I'm not entirely certain if she did lose her eyesight then or not. My great-grandmother said that was the case. There are accounts that she was actually born blind. Now I'm not entirely certain which one is true, whether my great-grandmother is correct or not. Both of them have now passed. At the time, my great-grandmother was 94, and Vanga was well into her late 80s as well. The interesting thing about her is she's actually quite famous on the Balkans. It's been quite a few presidents, quite a few famous people that used to go to her for help. She never asked for money, which was the interesting thing. And she would never give cures as such to people. She would usually tell them to go to a doctor. And usually would give them the exact name of a doctor and a hospital where they should go, which was quite intriguing. Now, my personal story with her was... Well, actually, I've got two stories. One of them concerns my father. When he was quite young, doing his compulsory military service back in the day, and Banga called my grandmother, seeing as they knew each other, and told her that he has had an accident up into the Balkan Mountains, and she told him exactly where he was, said that the colonel he was driving was dead, that they can't save him, but if they get there in two hours, they could potentially save my father. That all turned out to be true. Now, obviously, this is pre-mobile phones, pre-internet, pre-all of that back in the 70s. They obviously got there. The colonel was, in fact, dead, unfortunately, and they did save my father. My personal story with her was I was quite young. I remember I tried cigarettes for the first time. Now, she told on me, she told my mom, and she told her exactly where I tried that cigarette where I got it from and where I was hiding. Now, there was no way my mom would have known and told her to scare me because I know my mom, she would have just yelled at me and I would have been punished forever and ever immediately if she caught me or if anyone even, you know, suggested to her that I was doing that because that is exactly what she did when Vanga told on me. I remember I wasn't a huge fan of hers afterwards because, yeah, (laughs) she told on me. To be fair, you should not smoke them, obviously. But, you know, children impressionable. Now, obviously, if you dig more into her, you will find out there's quite a lot of controversy. Some people believe that 
you know, she was getting uh, fed by the KGB information on people. All I can say is uh, she was actually a quite nice old lady. She never asked for money from anyone. People always tried to give her gifts because they were quite grateful because she did help a lot of people, bizarrely. The Bulgarian church wanted her to become a saint. She actually said before she died that she did not want to be a saint because she believed in God, but she didn't believe she was a saint. She believed she was a martyr at best. Another interesting bit around her, I remember her funeral, and there was a couple of presidents there, you know, from the Balkans, from Russia. It was quite interesting. One thing that struck me was that they put silver coins on her eyes. Now, that was not usually done, but Bulgarian folklore, for those who don't know, although thanks to Bram Stoker, everyone thinks of vampires, Romanian things, they are very much a Bulgarian thing. They come from Bulgaria, essentially that folklore. And for ages, Bulgarians would literally stab the hearts of people they believe will come back as vampires. And usually it was believed that if someone had the third sight or could see the future, or you know, like Vanga, they are potentially coming back. Now, they didn't stab her, thank God for that, and stab her with a stake, but they did put silver coins on her eyes. Often, they decapitated corpses as well. Thankfully, again, they didn't do that, but they did put a very thick uh, stone plate on top of her grave, something that's not usually done in the region. So yeah, I remember that was quite interesting, and I was quite confused about that when I was a kid. Yeah, that's my submission for Hometown Legends. I hope you can use this. Have a good one. Thank you, caller. That is a badge of honor, I would imagine. Being ratted out by a world-renowned clairvoyant. I guarantee you, not everyone can claim that. And Baba Vanga was quite popular, as our caller suggested. And quite accurate, if her followers are to be believed. These are just a few of the premonitions she made that again, according to her practitioners, came to fruition. World War II, the breakup of the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia, the Chernobyl disaster, the date of Stalin's death, the date of Tsar Boris III's death, the date of her own death, the sinking of the Russian submarine Kursk, Princess Diana's death, the 1985 Northern Bulgaria earthquake, and the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. And I suppose if you're anything like me, you want to know what these predictions actually sounded like. Because are we simply creating a connection between loosely worded claims and uncorrelated events? As I suspect often happens with other prophets. Nostradamus, I'm talking to you. Or was she more specific in her premonitions? Well, thanks to the television program, Ancient Aliens, we have an example of what a few of her biggest prophecies sounded like. New York City, September 11th, 2001. American president will fall after being attacked by the steel birds. Two planes hijacked by members of a terrorist group called Al-Qaeda crash into the World Trade Center, taking the lives of nearly 3,000 innocent civilians. Sumatra, Indonesia, December 26, 2004. 
A huge wave will cover a big coast, covered with people and towns, and everything will disappear beneath the water. A 9.1 magnitude earthquake off the coast of the island creates a devastating tsunami, completely engulfing over 3,000 miles of land and claiming the lives of over 230,000 people. Washington, D.C., January 20th, 2009. The 44th president of the United States will be an African-American man. Everyone will put their hopes in him. I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear. Barack Obama, an African-American senator from Illinois, is sworn into office as the 44th president of the United States. Congratulations, Mr. President. Now, according to the video, each of those predictions were made years and even decades before the events actually took place. And I've linked to a little further information on Baba Vanga. If you're curious, hit up the show notes for those links. And links to just about everything discussed here this evening. If you're a deep diver, you're going to want to check it out. But you know, whatever Baba Vanga was, she seemed to have some sort of ability. An ability that appeared to have allowed her to glimpse into the future. It's amazing stuff, Caller. And thank you for sharing your hometown legend. Now, I'm not going to make this a big, long announcement, but some of you don't listen all the way to the end. So I wanted to slip this in here ahead of time. Especially since we're going between seasons. If you'd like more Monsters Among Us, or if you'd like to keep the episodes flowing, why not consider joining us on Patreon? Patreon.com and search for Monsters Among Us Podcast. Any level you can join helps. And don't forget you can try it all out for free for seven days. Won't you come join us beyond? Now next up, we venture down to Texas, where Candace is waiting with a call. Hi, my name is Candace from West Texas, a small town called Lubbock. I'm calling about the hometown tales. So I'm calling about a famous house in our town called the Woodrowanit Manor. I have a little bit of a personal connection. My husband's grandparents actually built a house that would later turn into a haunted attraction known as the Woodrowanit Manor and is alleged to be very haunted. Although when my husband's family and his grandparents were there, there was never any history or any sort of, you know, ghostly activity. In 1994, the house was built, but preceding that was a lot of family tragedy. And I will give a little bit of a trigger warning of violence. So in 1994, the house was built, but it was financed by a lawsuit that was won by my husband's grandparents. They had a tragedy. They lost their son when he went swimming, and there was no no swimming signs posted. So he actually drowned in a river there, and they sued the city, and they had a chunk of money, you know, from this tragedy, and they bought the land and they built their house. It kind of started a little bit right away. I guess tragedy kind of just followed because even in building a house, it took a really long time to build. 
And my husband said that the builder actually had a heart attack when he was working on the house. He did survive and he did go on to build them um, another house later on, but I just thought that was kind of a strange little coincidence. Some years later in the year 2000, my husband's uncle was actually shot and killed there. He was killed by state troopers. There was a CPS case that involved him and his wife and my husband's grandparents, Grandpa Joe and Grandma Viola had custody of the children at the time. They weren't supposed to be letting their parents go over to see them as a court order. It was actually on Grandma Viola's birthday. Somebody called and said, hey, CPS up, I guess. And they went to go investigate. There was a rumor he was there at the house, my husband's uncle. He was not there at the time, but I guess upon hearing that they were going to remove the children from the house, he went over there, raced over there. The police showed up and... He was just very distraught, very upset. He didn't have any weapons on him or anything. They shot him unarmed, and he was killed right in front of the house. Just kind of some more family tragedy that happened. My husband's cousin, she was actually murdered by her boyfriend at the time. So there's this strange tragedy, you know, the family history of tragedy. Although they never had experiences when they lived there in the house, I do think some of this tragedy may have contributed to what happened later on. So shortly after my husband's grandparents sold the house, again, just a tragedy, and they obviously didn't want to live there anymore. It was rumored that Grandma Viola did bury something in the yard, a witchcraft type thing, if you please, that would make anybody, you know, like residents in the home, that they would feel uncomfortable in the home. They sold the house shortly after that again, and it was bought by a veterinarian. And that's kind of when some of those rumors started going around. So the veterinarian that lived there also had a side of my family. My sister was kind of friendly with her. This veterinarian was always a little bit strange. So my sister went over to do some sort of graphic designer artwork for her. One day when she pulled up in front of the house, she called her to tell her she was there, but when she picked up her cell phone, there was somebody on the phone. She hadn't dialed her number, but there was a man on the phone and he was frantically speaking Spanish. My sister didn't really understand what he said because we don't speak Spanish, but it went away, I guess, and she was able to make her call and she was able to go inside. Just a strange little paranormal type thing that happened to her. Again, it was rumored, I think, that the veterinary allegedly some mental health issues several more practices. There is court documents online that say she left puppies inside of a dog after performing a cesarean section, like she missed some puppies inside the dog. And then another case where she was supposed to give an IV to a dog and she gave it formaldehyde. She actually put formaldehyde in the dog. And of course, the dog then died. She was sued for malpractice and eventually lost her license. Like I said, allegedly some mental health issues. So again, we don't know, it's kind of rumored that the house is very unfortunate for people. In 2017, a man from out of town bought the house without telling his wife. And when he sent her pictures, it was alleged that she said, no, she's not moving in the house because it was definitely haunted. And since then, they had turned it into a haunted attraction for the 2017, 18 and years 2019. And then the stories have just continued to circulate from there. There's just been accounts of all kinds of paranormal activity in the house since. My son was very curious about the house a couple years ago. He talked to a paranormal investigator with the Lubbock Ghost Investigation Society. 
but she actually compared it to Stephen King's Rose Red House. And she did say she picked up like a residual kind of haunting of children. I mean, there were children in the house all the time. Grandma Viola was very active with her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And she did say she's been the presence of an angry older man. Now, this can kind of be confirmed that my husband had a great uncle that did live there who had Alzheimer's. And, you know, sometimes when people have Alzheimer's, they get very irate, very angry. You know, this would describe him. She did also say she did since the presence of Grandma Viola, but that's kind of unconfirmed. Grandma Viola did pass away in 2014, and Grandpa Jose did pass away last year in 2021. And they, you know, had not lived in the house for several years. So, you know, if Grandma Viola is still there, it's because maybe she did have an attachment to the house, maybe because her son died there. Yeah, so it's just supposed to be a very, very haunted house with lots of rumors. And there's a lot of misinformation online if you look up the Witcher Haunted Manor. So a lot of information from wrong dates of being built to accounts that just didn't happen. And my mother-in-law does state that she never felt anything there and she never felt like the house was haunted. So if anything occurred, it did occur after Grandma and Grandpa moved out of that house. So I hope you enjoyed the story. And I would be curious if anybody had any other stories I didn't find a lot online. So I'd be curious to see if other listeners have some stories about the Woodrow Haunted Manor in Lubbock. Thank you. Thanks, Candace. You know, I looked it up, and haunted or not, that place looks pretty spooky. And just how weird would it be to visit a haunted house attraction set up in your grandparents' home? I wonder if anyone there happened to glimpse the ghost of a little old lady, cussing up a storm over the amount of dirt that's being tracked in. Don't mind her, that's just Nana. And thanks again, Candace, for sharing your literal haunted house story. Well, folks, we made it this far. All the way to tonight's closer, so to speak. Here from the state of Florida is Bethany with her hometown legend. Now, a quick trigger warning here. There will be discussion of attempted sexual assault in this entry and in my subsequent commentary. No gory details are given, but a warning nonetheless. Hi, Monsters Among Us and Derek. My name is Bethany. I live in the Tampa area. This is kind of a little lighter weight story, maybe for a hometown legends. But this is regarding my husband's family who immigrated from Scotland to Canada and then later on to Michigan. My husband's great-grandfather was a noted personage in Detroit, and he had a trunk full of papers that we kind of ended up with. And then going through the papers, I found something kind of fun. There was a letter in there addressed to a cousin, I think, his great-grandfather, and it is regarding the Amherst Mysteries. The great Amherst mystery was a poltergeist case in Nova Scotia in 1878 into 1879. And it regarded a girl named Esther Cox, who, after a attempted sexual assault by an acquaintance, her house started to be filled with poltergeist activity. And I'm going to read a little bit from a website. 
So during the first several nights, Esther's body swelled up in agony, causing her to feel she would explode. Her body changed from burning hot to cold, and she went into spasms and trances and said things that later she did not recall. Blankets and pillows flew off the bed repeatedly, even after family members replaced them. Also, writing appeared on the wall above Esther's bed, saying, Esther Cox, your mind to kill. There were strikingly loud sounds, like claps of thunder, that appeared to originate under the bed and later from the roof. Anyway, there were lots of other poltergeist activity, and eventually some investigators came up to observe it. And in amongst these papers from my husband's great-grandfather's trunk, there is a letter And I would like to read the letter to you. Dated Amherst, 1878. Reverend McKinley, Reverend and dear sir, your questioning in regarding inspecting the Amherst mystery has come to hand. And with a multitude of similar applications before me, I can only say that the accounts of the phenomena which have appeared in the papers of the lower provinces are substantially correct. I have been interviewed by reporters from Montreal and Toronto, but have not seen what they have written. Yours truly, R. Alden Temple. Anyway, I just thought that was a little kind of interesting piece of history that the great Amherst mystery from Nova Scotia in 1978 appeared to have happened in this man, R. Alden Temple. Saw evidence of it. Thank you very much. I love the show. I decided to call after you referenced the Enfield poltergeist, and it just reminded me of this little letter that I found. Thanks very much. That's chilling stuff. Thank you, Bethany, for sharing. Well, before we begin, let's recap the Amherst mystery story once more, this time courtesy of Weird World over on YouTube. The Amherst mystery was a case of poltergeist activity in Amherst, Nova Scotia, Canada, between 1878 and 1879. It was investigated by Walter Hubble, an actor who had interest in psychic phenomena and kept a dar of events in the house. The mystery centered around Esther Cox, who lived in a house with her married sister Olive Teed, Olive's husband Daniel, and their two young children. A brother and sister of Esther and Olive also lived in the house, as did Daniel's brother, John Teed. Events began at the end of August 1878, after Esther Cox, 18, was subjected to an attempted sexual assault by a male friend. The assault left her in distress, and a short time later, the physical phenomena began. First, there were knockings, bangings, and rustlings at night. Then Esther started having seizures where her body would swell up and she started to suffer from fevers and chills. Then objects in the house started moving. The family had now become so distressed that they called in a doctor. Whilst the doctor was present, bedclothes moved, scratching noises were heard, and the words, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill, appeared on the wall by the head of Esther's bed. The doctor administered sedatives to Esther to calm her and help her sleep. But this appeared to make matters even worse and the paranormal activity increased with more noises and flying objects. They attempted to communicate with the spirit which resulted in tapped responses to questions. The unusual activity continued for many months. Now I realize this is a difficult topic to discuss on a paranormal podcast. 
but I promise you, it is integral to the story. So here are some further details on what exactly went down on the evening of the alleged assault, according to the paranormal scholar. On the 28th of August, 1878, Esther returned home in a terrific state of shock. That evening, she had been taken out for a carriage ride by Bob McNeil, a handsome young shoemaker who had been courting her. However, far from being an enjoyable outing, their carriage ride turned traumatic when Bob drove Esther away from Amherst and into the woods and attacked her. Pulling a large revolver from his pocket, he instructed the young woman to get out of the carriage and join him on the ground, or else he would shoot her. Esther did not, and she feared that the man she had thought she could trust was about to kill her then and there. Fortunately, the sound of wheels were heard rumbling in the distance before he could do anything. Bob jumped back into the carriage and drove Esther home. Wet through from the rain and trembling with fear, she immediately rushed to bed and was not seen until morning. Now folks, here is where this mystery appears to deepen. If you will, once again, listen to the words of the letter that is now in Bethany's possession. Your questioning regarding inspecting the Amherst mystery have come to hand and with a multitude of similar applications before me, I can only say that the account of the phenomenon, which has appeared in the papers of the lower provinces, are substantially correct. I have been interviewed by reporters from Montreal and Toronto, but I have not seen what was written. Yours truly, R. Alden Temple. Now, if you recall in the version of events told by the paranormal scholar, Esther's attacker was one Bob McNeil. Now, doing a little digging, we learned that Bob's given name is Robert, as in the letter R, and his full name was Robert Alden Temple McNeil. The very same R. Alden McNeil that wrote the letter now in Bethany's possession. Which I suppose now raises a few questions. If the story is true, and he did commit or attempt to commit unspeakable acts, why would he later incriminate himself in written form? Furthermore, why would he go to the press with a story that paints him as a literal monster? Now, I don't believe the letter or the association to the gentleman solves any of the mysteries, but it certainly does bring into question the origin of this paranormal tale. But in my opinion, that's a true piece of paranormal history you have there, Bethany. And I urge you to please take great care of the document and even take extensive photographs as backup. And should you ever get sick of owning it, please do let me know. I'll make sure to preserve it for all the world to see. Thank you again for sharing your hometown legend. And that's it, folks. That's going to do it for this special season-ending episode. Now, as usual, Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Copyright, Red Crow Media. Additional support was provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Delaney Powers. All media used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And if you enjoy the show and want to stay up to date on any announcements, be sure to follow our social media pages. And while you're at it, give us a like and subscribe over at YouTube. And since you're already on the internet goofing around, 
why not leave us a rate and review? Wherever that sort of thing is possible. You can catch us Saturdays at 11 p.m. Eastern on the UnX Network. And you can also hear us Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on sundown966.com. And finally, tonight's score was provided by Iron Cthulhu Apocalypse, Co.eg Music, and Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Thank you for yet another amazing season. Everybody stay safe, stay spooky, and I'll catch you next time. Have a good night. Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? Have you or your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Pick up the phone and call Monsters Among Us podcast at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-NIGHT. Now, tonight's top secret entry is, of course, another hometown legend. And per usual for this slot, it's a rather strange one. So Chip, out of Indiana, welcome to the secret spot. Hi, Derek. It's Chip from Indiana calling you again. I was wanting to report a uh, entry for your hometown legends. The legend is in Anderson, Indiana. There is a uh, old Arby's restaurant there. That there's a website that gives the details about it. But essentially, it's just a uh, haunted by some man I um, actually am related to possibly the man's sister she states that it's her brother that uh, actually haunts it but can't really verify that anyway so her and my wife they're friends and they had went by there to kind of just check out the place it had been closed down for some time but they were looking through the windows and stuff just messing around and not doing what you should do which is you know, try to tempt the ghosts and, you know, poke at them and try to get them to come out. They were trying to provoke it. And they came home that night and they were out late, so I was asking where they were. And they were telling me what they were doing. And I said, well, you probably just invited something back to the house. Well, needless to say, um, we all watched the movie that night. The next day, it was the 4th of July, and we had went out. It was just my wife and I and our youngest daughter had come home. And everything was fine, but when we walked in the house, there was a painting or like a picture fell off our wall. And I just assumed it came out of the stud or the, you know, the nail. So I I hung it back up and as soon as I turned around, it it dropped to the floor. Well, I, again, just assumed it was a loose nail. So I tried reconstructing it, trying to make the nail, you know, go in the wall a little bit more and... So I, I hung it back up, and as soon as I turn around, you know, the picture falls again. 
So at this point, you know, I'm not thinking anything of it. My wife is kind of freaking out, so she runs to the bedroom with her daughter. She's thinking that's supernatural at this point. I did not think it was supernatural. But I go to get a nail, a longer nail and a hammer from the garage, and I come back in, and the picture is gone. It's not leaning up against the wall in the living room anymore. I can't find it. I can see into my daughter's room from their vantage point, and the picture is now leaning up against the bed in there. And I holler at my wife, and I ask her, I said, why'd you move the picture? Well, she comes running out of the bedroom, you know, freaking out. She's like, what do you mean? And I point at the picture, I goes, it's in there. I said, I didn't move it in there. I leaned up against the wall in the living room. Well, at this point, she's freaking out. And I'm like, something else is explaining this. So anyway, I try to hang it back up. The picture keeps falling down. At this point, my wife's kind of freaking out. I'm starting to get a little freaked out. So we decided to pack things up and we're like, we're, we're just going to leave the house for a minute. So we get in the car. I noticed that the lights are on in the kitchen. So I'm like, I'm going to go back in there. My wife's like, okay, I'll go in with you. We left our daughter in the car and we walk in and as you go into the house, you have the living room and then you go through a doorway with no door. It's just, you know, a regular doorway and there's the kitchen. So we go into the kitchen. I'm kind of checking the place out and I turn around and now I'm facing the front door and on both sides of the kitchen doorway you have a picture on your left and a picture hanging on your right and the light switch is right below the picture on the right so i go to turn off the light switch and as soon as i go for that light switch the picture on the right flies over my right shoulder and then the picture on the left flies towards my left and at that point i turn off the lights we go out the house and we just kind of take a ride I can't explain it. I don't know if she had brought something home that night, the night before. I can't explain it. There's other phenomena in that uh, area. The house we were staying in, unfortunately, down the road, there was a murder that happened as well. There was many different things that happened to us at this house, and none of for a five-minute call. But essentially, that was the gist of everything else that happened that night on the 4th of July. And I uh, hope you can use this for your hometown legends. And keep up good work. Thank you. Thank you, Chip. Well, folks, I did a little digging on this, and I couldn't find much on this haunting other than this short description. Reports of a ghost of a large man sitting in the lobby at one of the tables, and also the men's bathroom doors swing open at random times in the night. You can feel his presence there. So I ask you, Chip, was your wife's friend's brother a larger man? If so... She just might be onto something. And thank you again, Chip, for calling in. And a huge thanks to you for tuning in. Not only this evening, not only this season, but for these past 300-plus episodes. Per usual, though, this is us just getting started. We have big things in store and big goals in sight. But for now, we need a few weeks to regroup, recoup, and clean up around here a little. No worries, however, because we will still have mostly fresh content between the seasons. So please continue to tune in every Thursday. And of course, don't forget about all the content over at Patreon.com. $5 gives you access to probably 90 plus hours of previously unreleased content. And that goes a long, long way 
to help us continue and grow. Now here is where we would normally cut to one of those beyond after shows. But with the premiere and the hurricane, I've simply run out of time. So this week's Beyond will be a standalone episode. Look for it sometime Friday or Saturday. For everyone else, I'll catch you next week with brand new content. For screening info on our feature film, visit BorregoTriangle.com. And lastly, keep your eyes open, folks. I promise there's weirdness everywhere. Have a good night.